science. Love is not with us today, unfortunately, on Love and Science, but you do have the company of me, Andrew Glester, and I'm delighted to say joining me in the studio is Ty Aziz. Hello, Ty. Hello, Andrew. And uh, this is your first time on the show, I believe. It is indeed. I've heard a lot of great things about the show, so it's nice for you to welcome Oh, well, we've heard an awful lot of good things about you, so that's very nice of you to say. Um, Now, I understand that you have just started a, well, relatively recently started a new job here in Bristol. I have indeed. So that is at the At Bristol Science Centre, which is in the lovely Millennium Square. It's a great place to work. So if you ever come and visit, please do come and say hello to me. Yeah. What, what, what do you do? What can people find you doing when you're there? So I'm a member of the live science team. And what that means is we are responsible for actually delivering most of the programming which happens at the centre. So that's things like the shows which happen in the kitchen, you can find us upstairs in the lovely tinkering space where you can make and create all manner of lovely things. And we also do the planetarium shows as well. Oh, do you? I love yeah. that planetarium. I'm really excited to yeah. be trained on planetarium. Have you not done them yet? Not yet, yeah. but we will be soon. I d- if anyone's not been to the planetarium, I really, really recommend going to it. It is amazing. It is wonderful. If you, if, what is it? I think you're under a certain age. You might know this, but under a certain age, you can't do the 3D version. Under six, under yeah. Under six, but yep. uh, it's worth waiting until you're six. Uh, or indeed 40, as I am, uh, to see the 3D version. I mean, it is a mind-blowing experience. It really is. Um, I uh, have to admit, actually, that Ty and I um, have met before on a couple <laughs> of occasions. Um, I did my dissertation a year ago, three, two, three years ago, for my Master's in Science Communication here at UWE on the Planetarium. which was largely my excuse to hang out in the planetarium quite a lot. (laughs) And uh, Ty is, well, you're doing that Masters at the moment, aren't you? Just coming to the end. Yep, I am indeed. So we'll be doing our dissertation soon and then we'll be finished in November. Okay, cool. And what's your dissertation? Because the way it works on the Masters is that um, all the students have a project at the end which becomes a dissertation. And, uh, And quite often you're actually doing something really quite interesting. Um, as I say, I was hanging out in the planetarium, working out how the planetarium could be used as a 3D planetarium to communicate science with adults, um, which was, as I say, just an excuse for me to stand, spend as much mm. time as I possibly could Great in the planetarium. Yeah. But what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you looking at, Ty? Yeah, like, like you said, um, a lot of the projects are really interesting. And I think that's because you can tailor your project to suit whatever your interests are, which is amazing. So my interests lie were in uh, the realm of equality and accessibility into science, and I'm really passionate about getting people like young girls, people from different ethnic backgrounds, from maybe lower socioeconomic statuses into science, because we have a huge gap in the market at the moment. And, you know, the, the growth and success of the UK's economy is massively dependent on how many science technology graduates we can create in the next few years so if we've got that huge gap in you know maybe half of the population who are not going into those areas because they face boundaries that maybe other people might not you know what can we do to help those 
people, especially women for me, get into their sciences and mm. what are the barriers they're facing. And uh, how are you going to be looking into that? What's the, the aim of the project, etc.? So my project is mainly focusing on one area of that, and that is how women can model the behaviour of other people they see around them. So this is something called voracious experience, and it all based on um, young girls find it really important to see other women around them, people who look like them, who have the same hobbies as them, and they want to see that other people who are similar to them can do certain things. So, you know, it helps them gain confidence and makes that environment more welcoming. And that helps a lot of young girls go into sciences and technology, engineering, etc. So for my project, I'm actually creating a film or attempted to create a film. And that'll be showcasing all these amazing women that I've met in different areas of science. You know, not just people in the lab, but I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting a woman who was the second woman ever to go to the North Pole solo. Oh, wow. Yeah. Who's that? Um, she's called Laura, and okay. I've only met her. I actually met her through a visitor at Bristol. Oh, wow, yeah. So That's that a was good a job really, to get then, Yeah, really serendipitous meeting. Yeah, amazing. And well, who else are you talking to? Have you done any of the interviews yet? Are, you, are they coming up? I or? have, yeah. Um, so I've interviewed some architects at a, a firm in Stride, called Stride to Glown in Bristol. Um, I've also met a woman called Rosie Johnson, who's a PhD student at the University of Leicester, and she's studying the northern lights of Jupiter. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Amazing. So amazing. Wow, that is really amazing. Um, I think we we'll probably need to get her on the show, so when you've had a chat with her... That would her, be amazing, put her yeah. in touch, that would be amazing. <laughs> um, so, when you're, um, you're looking at this, I presume you've started doing your literature review and all that sort of thing. Have you, have you got a handle on... On, on why it is that these barriers are there or, or, mm. or, or anything like that? Um, if we, so if we look at engineering, engineering is the biggest example of this massive gap and only 8% of the engineering workforce in the UK is female. And when you look at the, ri the literature, a lot of that is because um, the main reason is that there's a hostile work environment in those areas for women. So again, it's being able to see that these women can go into those areas because they're going to fit in well, they're going to be working with people that have similar interests and beliefs, they're going to be surrounded by a positive, structured atmosphere. But, you know, for whatever reason, that's not happening and that's not being portrayed to these women. So that's one of the biggest barriers right now. Okay. And is it... Um, well, are, are you a scientist yourself? I wouldn't call myself a scientist. I would call myself a science communicator. Okay. Have you have you come to to science communication through science? Is that yes? Yeah, I have. Stuff? I did a human physiology degree. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh, you've you've come to science communication because you kind of well, why is it you've come to science communication? You tell me. Mm, I think it's because I've always had a passion for sharing my love of science, everything related, and I've never been able to find just one area of science that I'm hugely passionate about to decide to study it all my life which is you know what a scientist does they find one area of research in their small world and they spend their lives trying to prove themselves wrong in one little area of science yeah and 
I find too many things interesting. Yeah. Well, that's good, and that's why we've got you here in the studio, because we're going to be looking at the science news in the, in the world at the moment, uh, which is a huge, broad church of all sorts of scientists, as you say, looking at one specific thing and finding out as much as they possibly can about it, trying to prove mm. themselves wrong. And when they prove themselves wrong, they're delighted because they've found something <laughs> new. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. What a glorious day here in Bristol. I hope it's lovely wherever you're listening to us in the world, or indeed if you're listening to our podcast, which is the version of this radio show with no music. I don't know why you wouldn't want the music. Plenty more lovely music here to come on Love & Science on BCFM. That's 93.2 FM. I'm Andrew, and I'm delighted to be joined, as I say, by Ty in the studio. And we're going to start looking at the science that's in the news at the moment. And there's, a, there's an article which, which came up in New Scientist, which, well... It grabbed me, and I think it grabbed you as well, Ty. And it's, it, the title of the article is Our Brains Prefer Invented Visual Information to the Real Thing. Can you tell mm, us about that? Indeed. So I think a lot of people have heard of cognitive bias, but we may not understand why that actually happens or where it comes from. So this study looked at how our brains tend to fill in missing information, and we seem to trust that constructed information that our brain creates rather than full information that we can actually see from the external world which is crazy mm. might it might explain part of why it's so hard for us to you know look at a certain thing which may disagree with what we believe in because we're we're basically creating our own understanding of the world yeah yeah it, it's it, as i as i understand it our brain fills in information um, it's, so this particular study has been looking at the uh, at the visual blind spot. Yeah. Now we'll come to that in a minute. But we do have, um, I think everybody can appreciate that we all have blind spots in our in our kind of the way that we look at the world and our philosophies and our thinking. You know, there's um, I, I I know, for example, that I am irrationally a fan of West Ham Football Club. That makes no sense whatsoever. It, um, you know, joking apart, it actually flies in the face of pretty much every um, sort of philosophy, moral standpoint that I have that I should even care about football. But somehow I do, and I kind of I do use that to kind of. I try and understand the way that people who I think have some kind of a rational belief or a rational following in their life and see that, okay, I've got this. I'm sure there are other ones as well. That's the one I'm prepared mm. to admit. And <laughs> <laughs> we finished 11th. It's fine. And, um, <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, I just feel like um, there's these blind spots out there. If we can accept them, we accept that we've got them and then challenge them and challenge ourselves on them, then mm. we might all get to a better place. But tell us about this particular experiment, if you can. Yeah, sure. So everybody has a blind spot in your retina, in your vision, and that's caused by... Um, so at the back of your eye, you have an area where your neurons leave the eye and travel to the brain to take that information of what you're seeing to your brain. And so because those neurons are there, you don't have any light-sensitive cells in that part of the retina. So that creates your blind spot. And in this study, what they did was take some participants and they showed them two circles. So both circles were filled with vertical lines. And one of the circles had an area in the middle where it was obstructed by a section of horizontal lines. So that area falls on the participant's blind spot when they look at these two circles. 
So when they're looking at the circles, they don't see that. Yeah, they don't see that area that is full of horizontal lines instead of vertical lines. So when they look at the circles, they were asked to decide which circle out of the two was more likely to be filled with the vertical lines that they could see. And, you know, surprisingly, they actually chose the circle that had the obstruction in the middle that was filled with the vertical lines. Right. Instead of the one that they could actually see was filled with vertical ones, yeah. they chose the one that, you know, their brains made up for that information. That's, that's amazing. So there's actually... We know that we're filling in the information, but there's actually a preference in our mind for the one that isn't real. Exactly. Yeah, okay, that may explain the American election. Um, <laughs> did I say that out loud? And, um, uh, but um, there is, there is a, this quite a hard thing to talk about on the radio, but I did find one which is, um, is an auditory one, actually, and it shows you how your mind can play tricks on you and your perception of the world is filling... Uh, your mind is filling in gaps that aren't really there. Mm. Now, I wanted to play you this. There's this. This is a very famous song. You may recognise it, but the this, this song has been stripped of its vocals and made into a MIDI file, which means that literally none of the vocal is left, and it becomes a... It sounds like a bomb's gone off in a <laughs> in, in piano factory, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. But if you can start to pick out the song, then you might start to hear the words. Okay. There's three... Uh, there's three files here. Two of them are exactly the same. The first one is the MIDI file, and the last one is the MIDI file. Nothing has changed, but in between you will hear the song as it originally is. Oh. And see whether, when you hear the second one, you start to hear what sounds like a ghostly voice singing the words to okay. you. Okay. So this is really horrible, but stick with it. It's, it's amazing. Don't retune your radio. Remember, there's nobody singing that. All the vocals cannot be there. It's not possible for them. You've probably got what the song is. That is really bizarre. Yeah. Oh my god. You got that one, okay? I'll let you listen to this and then listen again to exactly the same file, nothing changed, and see whether that ghostly voice seems more real to you. I hope you're experiencing that today and in the cars as well. What a, what a weird world it is we live in. I promise you that is exactly the same file that you heard the first time around. Your brain is filling in that ghostly sound. So next time you hear a ghost or you see a ghost, remember it's just your mind making it up. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Last week was uh, the Pint of Science Festival here in Bristol and all around the world. And I... Well... I was perusing my Twitter feed one morning and I spotted a, a, a tweet that had come up that said, 10,000 years ago was a slide from Pint of Science, one of the presenters here at uh, Pint of Science in Bristol. He said, 10,000 years ago, everybody, every human being 
was lactose intolerant. Really? Yeah. 10,000 years ago. So I thought, well, that's fascinating. So I wanted to go and meet uh, Dr. Julie Dunn of the School of Chemistry here in University of Bristol. And I began, well, listen, Julie's amazing. You're going to enjoy this. It's It's just a brilliant uh, time I had chatting to her and what she does is she takes pots if you want to look her up on Twitter she's called the pot lady which is entertaining <laughs> enough and, uh, but what she does is she takes old pots and pottery and she, using chemistry techniques she looks back at the way that we used to eat in the past and I began by asking her how it is that we could possibly know 10,000 years ago everybody was lactose intolerant so we know that because uh, genetic tells us that. So looking at the, you can look at the ancient genome and determine whether we had the gene for lactase persistence, which means you can, uh, your body can process milk or milk products. And that tells us that we didn't have that gene 10,000 years ago. We didn't have it in the same way that all mammals didn't have it. All mammals that are, so called the mother, um, the gene switched off once, once you're weaned. And humans were the same. So we developed the evolution of the gene for a very specific reason. And it relates back to when humans uh, stopped being hunter-gatherers. So we settled down and we live a farming way of life. So this is what we call the agricultural revolution. So we domesticate animals, cows, sheep, goat and plants such as wheat, barley, crops like that. This all happens in the area of the Near East, Anatolia the Levant, the Fertile Crescent. Um, So people are settling, living much more sedentary lifestyles, exploiting these animals 10,000 years ago. Um, What happens is gradually these people spread out right across Europe, taking their animals with them and their pottery. Um, So I haven't mentioned the pottery yet, but I'm coming on to the pottery. (laughs) Um, Taking their animals and their pottery with them until finally they end up in the UK at around about 4,000 BC. So that's the first farmers in Britain. Their whole lifestyle is devoted to a farming farming way of life. So what do we use the pottery for? So the pottery, firstly, we can determine what kind of commodities were processed in the pots by using a combination of chemical and molecular and isotopic techniques. So what we can do essentially is take a very small piece of archaeological pottery which has survived over thousands of years on an archaeological site. And we've done this for thousands across the world. So we can grind this up into a powder and use uh, chemical extraction techniques on it. And um, we're looking at what are called um, lipids. So these are the fats, waxes and oils of the natural world. So by looking at their distributions and also their isotopic values, we can see the difference between, um, firstly, ruminant and non-ruminant carcass fats, so whether people were processing either cattle, sheep and goat, or pigs, for example. Um, We can tell the difference between the carcass fats and the dairy products, so milk, which might be made into cheese, yogurt and so on. Um, We can also identify things like aquatic products, fish and beeswax, but we're mainly talking about meat and milk processing right now. So because we want to know the answer to um, when people started using milk products, because it's only through using them that what you see is an example of gene culture co-evolution. We use them, and it's evolution in action, and we evolve this particular lactose persistence gene in what is a remarkably short space of time, because if you think about it, it's about 10,000 years ago we started using milk, 
by round about 4000 BC, when the first farmers arrive in Britain, um, we are adapted to use milk. Mm. And the reason you have to evolve a gene is if you are, so if you're lactose intolerant, you would know that um, if you utilise milk, the symptoms are very unpleasant. <laughs> what happens is that the processing of it in pots um, reduces the lactose content. So that will allow us to eat milk butter cheese without feeling so unpleasant, and that will lead to the evolution of the gene. Okay. So what, we do, what we're doing, um, one of the projects we're doing here in the lab is trying to determine when this happened. So we, the gene, we know the gene isn't present in the Near East. It would have taken a bit longer than that to evolve. And what we're looking at here is, did it evolve in an area called the LBK, which is the linear band ceramic, which is kind of the area of Germany, um, Poland, around about... 5,000 to 6,000 BC. It's still the case that not everyone is lactose tolerant, and there are vast areas of the world where they don't have a culture of drinking milk, where they are still lactose intolerant. But as far as Europe goes, most of Europe okay. has the gene. So yeah. there was a time on, on, yeah. on the earth when nobody drinks milk, yeah. and then suddenly some farmers think, I oh, know, I'm going to drink the milk. To make cheese, you need to add rennet, which is found in a sheep's stomach so and this is all hypothetical really but say for example they were storing milk in a sheep's stomach and it came into contact with rennet it might have made it would have made cheese so we you'd assume that might be the first instance of how people um, started to you know use milk products so yes maybe they drank it and maybe it didn't it tasted lovely but it made them a bit sick but it probably wouldn't have made everyone a little bit sick. Some would have tolerated it better than others, so they might have continued to use it and maybe developed a bit of a tolerance. Mm. Um, but also at the same time, they probably would have. Maybe they thought milk was really, really nice, so they might um, ferment it, whether accidentally or not. Again, that would reduce the lactose. So probably it's a combination of those sorts of things happening. Yeah. They probably just persisted because it tastes so damn good. How did you get into this? Oh, how did I get into it? Well, um, so for me, sort of a slightly longer story then, because I um, ha- had a previous career as an accountant for a construction company, but I was, you know, I think I'd always wanted to be a scientist, and I was really interested in things like ancient human origins, archaeology, and so on. So I, I kind of just stopped um, being an accountant and came to university did a, um, uh, an archaeological science degree and then I did a master's and then I did a PhD in organic, what we call organic residue analysis. And it's such um, a great topic to study because it really, you can really tie together the science and the archaeology. You can use hard science to answer archaeological questions. And organic residue analysis has really, um, you know, revolutionised our thinking about, about many things about um, food processing in the past. Okay. Mm. What well, uh, some other things that you could... So um, I worked for my PhD on um, pottery from um, Northern Africa, the Sahara. So there's a completely different life ways there. Instead of um, settling down and becoming farmers, almost the opposite happens. So it, back in the Holocene, around about 10,000 years ago, the Sahara was a vastly different place than it is today. It was green. It's called the Holocene Green Sahara. Lots of grasslands, big lakes, uh, lots of big game, like elephants, hippos, um, giraffes. And it was quite 
well populated by people. But um, they started off by living a sort of a, a semi-sedentary hunter-gatherer lifestyle. So the resources were so good that they were fairly settled. They'd only move a couple of times probably in the course of a year. But they were using pottery, which is really unusual. And pottery is in North Africa is one of the earliest that we know of. It's much The invention is much earlier than in the Near Eastern Europe. So domestica- domesticates come into the area around about five, 6,000 BC. And what seems to happen is they adopt them quite rapidly. They're, there's a lot of amazing rock on the Sahara that show cows particularly were incredibly important to these people. But because conditions start to dry, they have to start living a more mobile lifestyle. So they kind of do the opposite. They become more mobile not less mobile, in search of water for their animals, basically. But we, what I found in my PhD, um, had a really nice paper um, on first dairying. So this, we identified actually the first dairying in Africa, oh, cool. which is in the 5th millennium BC. Wow. So, and recently, even more, uh, well, it, 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 as exciting, um, just identified the earliest plant processing. Really? Yeah, in pots in, in Saharan Africa. So... So what ha- this was about 8,000 BC. And what's interesting about this is that plants um, have been a hidden foodstuff to us up until now. If you're processing meat in a pot, fat from meat will has a much higher lipid signal than um, plants, plant lipids would have. So they've been very hidden to us. We've not seen them at all up to now. But we found strong evidence of plant processing. And really interestingly, these people were exploiting all sorts of plants, right through from aquatic plants to uh, leafy plants and also grasses. So they're very sophisticated foragers, yeah. yeah. So is this, is this research kind of informing how we think about the way we eat today? You know? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, so, for example, in terms of yeah, uh, determining when lactose persistence evolved, that's really important for looking at diet today. It's been very useful at helping look at the beginning of domestication of plants and animals. And we're using it at the moment, the project I'm working on at the moment still is still in the Green Sahara. As well as being able to look at the food signals, the lipids can give us environmental signals. So we're using it to map the climate change across Holocene North Africa. Because what that will do is, again, that was a pe- period of what you call really rapid climate change, so just a few thousand years. Um, so being able to look at how people acted and reacted to that mm. is very relevant today because we're going to have to deal with that sort of thing ourselves yeah you know immediately basically so yeah yeah okay did they deal with it by the politicians telling the scientists <laughs> not to study it yeah yeah that's exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah yeah they dealt with it by ignoring it and hoping it would go away <laughs> yes humans have learned nothing i'm afraid <laughs> any regrets coming from um, accountancy. God, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Best thing I ever did. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's been amazing. Yeah, yeah. I've just enjoyed it so much. Now, we were talking earlier in the show about uh, women in science, and uh, we just heard from Dr. Julie Dunn, who's a, a brilliant woman in science right here in Bristol. There's another brilliant woman in science up in the night sky at the moment, and NASA have got some important work for her. Ty? Indeed. So NASA astronaut Peggy Whitson has been on board the International Space Station for quite some time now. She's going to be staying there for at least another three months, but she's doing an unplanned spacewalk tomorrow to replace some failed equipment. Well, that is, you know, I think that must be one of those mixed... Uh, the most mixed feelings you get (laughs) in in the life of an astronaut is, okay. This is an unplanned spacewalk, which means something's gone wrong that I've got to fix mm. that we didn't know. 
But uh, that's, a, that's a worry. And then you've got to go out into space, which is just about the most dangerous thing you can do with all those tiny little micrometeorites flying could just burst your um, burst your spacesuit at any moment. Uh, but the other side of it is you get that amazing view. Yeah, possibly the most scary but beautiful thing you will ever do. Yeah. Would you want to do that? Yeah, I was I was actually talking about this with a very young visitor to at Bristol yesterday, four year old boy. Um, he was called Jack, and we were discussing whether we would want to go to space with with a single way ticket. I said yes, and he said no. He said space was too dangerous. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Is it? Um, I, I, it is dangerous. I suppose when you're four. There's quite a lot of life ahead of you. Not saying you haven't got a lot of life ahead of you, Ty, but I, I, my view on it is I would, I, if I die before I see the Earth from space, then I'll be sad. Um, well, I won't be because I'll be dead, so I won't worry about it too much. But um, I'd love to see that view. Mm. Um, I, I, I've made this show in my camper van. I, I've talked about this before on the show, but I've made this show on the, uh, in my camper van, which is called the Apollo 11 camper van. Um, and we, we, there's... The reason I'm saying this now is there's uh, Michael Collins, who was the first uh, man to command the uh, Apollo uh, command module round the other side of the moon on his own, had this experience, which I know I'm not going to have, but I like to imagine it while sitting in my camper van, <laughs> which is being in something about the size of a, an Apollo, uh, about the size of a, a camper van, a VW camper van, and um, you have the moon between you and then the rest of humanity. So there's you in your tiny little spacecraft, then the moon, two people on the other side of it walking around, Neil and Buzz having a wander around, <laughs> and then hundreds of thousands of miles in the other direction, tens of thousands of miles in the other direction, mm. in, in that same direction is Earth. In the other direction, who knows what? Although Europa, uh, the, one of the moons of Jupiter is Europa, and it's, pr well probably one of if not the most uh, likely case of find for finding life elsewhere in our solar system and nasa have put a call out for the best ideas to send up with their um, uh, Europa lander, which is, I think it's going to, well, it's, it's not actually been confirmed yet, but it's planned mm. to be going up in the 2020s. 2022 or something like that, yeah. Okay, and um, essentially Europa is a icy moon uh, it's the smallest of what are known as the galilean satellites which are the satellites that um, well, the, the moons of jupiter that galileo saw through his telescope and um it's it's got a it's an icy moon and beneath its surface it's got this huge um ocean and we know uh, that life on this planet we know as best as we possibly can that life on this planet um, started at hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean and if Europa has those hydrothermal vents then life could begin have begun on the same same way on that planet and just imagining what life there could be even if it's just microbial life mm. what life there could be on an ocean that is inside a moon going around <laughs> Jupiter is one of the things that I love to do most. Though it's lovely that NASA have put out a call. If anyone's got any ideas who's listening who want to um, uh, come up with an idea for what experiments they should do with this lander. Mm, have you got any ideas? NASA. I'm not sure. I think, I think the Hubble Space Telescope did have some very patchy evidence of those hydrothermic vents that you spoke of. 
But it would be interesting to see if there are any, any extremophiles that live in yeah. those vents like we have on Earth. So an extremophile is a kind of bacteria that can thrive in hostile environments to most other life forms. So things like extreme acidity or extreme temperatures. Mm. So, you know, on Jupiter, they might not be extremophiles. They might be the bulk of what exists there. Yeah, it's... Um it, it, as I say, it's one of the one of my favourite things to do on any given night is look up at the night sky and wonder what might be out there. When there's these um, these amazing uh, missions going out to actually see what's out there, then uh, it kind of makes that dreaming a little bit more uh, real and a bit more exciting. <laughs> if, it, tonight, I mean, it's a it's a lovely clear day here in Bristol. I'm assuming it's going to be a clear night as well. If I go out into my garden, if our listeners go out into their garden tonight, would they be able to see Europa? In, in the night sky? Indeed they will. And as well as Europa, you will also be able to see three of the five bright planets. So if you're looking for Jupiter, you'll be able to see it the first thing at dusk and it should shine nearly all night long. Um, you can see Saturn in the southeast sky between mid to late evening. And if you're lucky, you may also get to see Venus in the eastern horizon. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, Venus is incredibly bright when it's down on, on, on the horizon there. It, it's it's it actually one of the most common um, uh, reasons that people call the police to say they've seen a UFO is when Venus is down oh, low on no the horizon. Way. So expect lots of UFO calls <laughs> if you're in the police. Um, yeah, so if you want to see uh, Europa, then you'll need... You could do it with just a, a small pair of binoculars. If you've got some binoculars at home, you don't need a big telescope to be able to see it just take them out maybe you've got some bird binoculars or something and you just take them out into the into the garden have a look up and you'll see uh, jupiter you might see depending on the strength of your binoculars you might see the bands going across it but you will almost certainly see uh, several of the uh, four galilean moons that that orbit i think there's four that that, um, <laughs> that that orbit um uh jupiter and they move as the night goes on they're obviously they're orbiting it and you can actually see them moving and in, in fact i think either now or in the last hour or so europa is actually passing between us and um jupiter so by the time oh, wow. jupiter is visible in our night sky tonight we will actually be able to see uh, that dot and if you're anything like me, you like to have a look at that dot and wonder what might be. Now, it's been wonderful to have your company. We're coming up to the end of the show now, but I just wanted to look at one more story before we go, which is, um, well, Instagram has got a little bit of bad press. Ty, can you tell us about it? Indeed. So a UK survey has looked into social media, which is hugely popular amongst the younger generation. And it's shown that Instagram is, in fact, the worst type of social media for problems such as social anxiety and depression amongst this audience. Really? Do they have an idea of why that is? Indeed. So a lot of Instagram is very image-heavy. It's all image-focused. And it tends to make these young people feel like they can't um, ascertain to those kind of beauty standards that are portrayed. It makes them have feelings of anxiety and makes them feel like they're not good enough to be in those communities that they follow. Oh dear, that is, that, that is a shame. I, I was listening to a podcast recently, a wonderful podcast by uh, NPR in America, which is called The Hidden Brain, and it was talking about how we... Um, use social media, particularly looking at uh, Facebook, that one, and what, what it was saying was that the depression that people feel when they uh, use social media, and particularly with Facebook, is not because their life is worse. It's not actually because they're comparing them to... to it's actually, just to try and get the words out, it's actually mm -hmm. that the act of comparing yourself to somebody else 
in itself, even if you feel better than them, takes you out of the moment that you're in mm. and stops you enjoying your life as it is, and that can lead to depression. And that's what they're finding with social media. Unfortunately, we are up to the end of the show. It's been lovely to have your company, uh, Ty, and lovely to have you uh, listening as well. And uh, do register to vote. It's very important. And uh, today is your last chance to do so.